Okay, on uh, this week's episode, we are going to talk about a film that made the list for worst films of the 20th century. And Troy's going to yell at Brad a lot because it's his pick. I'm Troy Sauer. Uh, Brad Anderson. And this is not a bomb. Sunday. It's it's just us this evening. It is. I, I guess uh, <laughs> we couldn't talk anyone to seeing Ishtar with us. Is that what we were? Uh, I have a feeling it was saying? the movie uh, that we picked this week. We kind of reached out to some of our friends and family, and everybody said, "Hell no." <laughs> yeah. So that should have been our first warning. Uh, we do have a staple of, I guess, about ten to twelve people that we just always have a list out to, and. Sometimes we we want to do podcasts with just you and I, but yes. it's funny. No one raised their hand for this one. Not a single soul. I mean, we share our list with everybody uh, throughout the rest of the year because I think we have things picked out. I think through December, definitely. We're coming up on January. That that list is getting solidified. But you're right. Not one person raised their hand for this film. And full disclosure, I mean, the, the whole idea of this is on the um, odd episodes, you would pick the film. I would get the even episodes, but this month we are doing movies that bombed that neither you or I have seen. Mm -hmm. And so I can't, I can't put the blame totally on you for this one because we, we kind of put our heads together and came up with these four movies, right? I mean, that we did, yeah. but this is like, I don't get to pick very like big episode, big numbered episodes. 50 is yours. hundred is yours. So 75 is like, Oh, I finally get to do one. We have to do one of the most notorious bombs of all time in 75, right? So that was one of the other reasons why it shows up on episode 75 of this podcast. Yes. So um, that's a great lead in. So do you remember back in 2001, the AFI, they did this 100 years, 100 movies list. So it was like the best 100 movies of all time, right? Uh-huh. So there was a website called The Stinkers, and they created 100 Years, 100 Stinkers, the worst films of the 20th century. And it was a list that was supposed to parody the AFI 100 greatest movie list. So the movie that you selected this week, or we kind of selected via committee, but you picked this one out of all of our choices, is none other than 1987's Ishtar, which made number 20 on the list of worst hundred films of the 20th century. Do, do you want to know what the, the, the 19 are that come before that? I would, I would like to know what other 19 films are worse than this one. Yes. So I thought this was a great segue because I, I think we're going to talk about some of these films. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised off, if we talked all of them. It's the list. No. And that's, that's uh, man, that breaks my heart. I'm, I didn't get the full hundred. I just got the top 20 and, and Ishtar came in right at 20, which we'll discuss later if that is high enough. But um, I'm going to go down this list. Number 19, Barbed Wire with Pamela Anderson. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, number 18, 1998's Godzilla. Okay. Number 17. Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Hey, Matthew Broderick. Number 17. Uh, I. This is where it gets interesting. Number 17 is Anaconda. The big snake nope. movie, right? Nope. I, I, think, I think that's kind of a fun film. Number 16. This one, I I would have thought it had been a little higher. Stop or my mom will shoot with Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Yeah. Number 15, Ace Ventura 2, When Nature Calls. That made the list. Okay. Yeah, that one's a little bit problematic now, too. So, yeah. Is it? <laughs> so, I wonder if the AFI's top 100 list if people have seen more on the bad list than they have on the afi's top 100 list because i've seen all these so far well i think lawrence of arabia is probably on their top 10 and i haven't seen it but i i i think i've seen every one of these films so so far i've seen all these films you too right oh yes okay numerous times like not just one yeah uh and so far i own all these on dvd or blu-ray so here we go uh, number 14, the Avengers. Do you remember this one? So it was a remake. Oh, the, of, the, uh, Sean Connery, the Avengers. No, no, Isn't no. Isn't he in that one? Was Sean Connery? I was thinking, wasn't it Uma Thurman and, uh, Ray Fiennes or something it was based on the oh, TV I, show. I thought maybe, okay. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Yeah. This was based on the Avengers TV series. So this was, um, a spy film, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah. When they were doing all those, all those times. Yep. This one. Uh, it should have been in top five. Is that from 1988? Uh, I thought it was in the 90s, actually. Uh, I, I It's one that I own. Um, I don't know. So if Ray Fiennes is in that. Uma Thurman is in that. And Sean Connery is also in that. Okay. Sean Connery. Yeah. 1998. Yes. Yeah. Patrick McNee was the uh, original um, star of the TV yep. show. Okay. 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 Um, number 13. This should be in the top three, in my opinion. But number 13 was Grease 2. So <laughs> the, the bowling. Rapey yeah, I, I, yeah, I know. Musical. I haven't seen Grease too. Oh, you haven't. Okay. No, <laughs> uh, this one's a little bit of a cheat, but I thought it was interesting. Number 12 is the look who's talking sequels. So they put all the sequels in at number 12. Um, number 11 jaws for the revenge, which, uh, I think Michael yeah. Kane said at bottom of house or something. Yeah. Oh yes. That's that? right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I don't agree with the next two. So number 10 is Waterworld with Kevin Costner. And we just, we just talked about the postman. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I will. We're going to do that on this show. So I can't say what I think about that right now. So, okay. Um, this one surprised me. Number nine, the Blair witch project. One of the worst films Wait, of the 20th century. Yeah. The Blair witch project. Isn't that crazy. Okay. Yeah. This list is now null and void. Here you go. Number eight, we've talked about, and I would say this is not one of the worst films. Now, without seeing it, judging it on its surface, I would have probably said, yeah, sure. But since we've talked about it, I have a lot of respect for this film. Number eight is Showgirls. Yeah, it's actually better than, I wouldn't say half the films we've done, but probably <laughs> 20 of the films that we've done. Oh, absolutely. Sure. It, it, it had a lot more depth than I thought. Number seven, I, I assume you've seen this one. It's Pat. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, gosh. Didn't Tarantino did a rewrite on that script or something? Is that the SNL That was one of the rumors that, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, number six, I would disagree I'll with. I'll have to ask him the next time we hang out. Okay, please do. Number six, I disagree with, but you would say it's probably um, 
deservedly on the on the top ten. Number six is Speed Two Cruise Control. Yes, that movie is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna. Disagree. Oh hi! Oh hello, Spider Man. <laughs> Number five, Spice World. Is that a surprise? I haven't seen that one. Oh, you haven't? I, I can no, actually I say I've seen that in the theater. You, you have a daughter that was probably big into spice. Oh, no, I saw top. this. Oh. Uh, yeah, on my own. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. You could have blamed it on Angel, but no. you. I, hey, I don't think I, Angel was born when honesty. Spice World came out. I respect your honesty. I don't think she's ever seen it. Uh, number four. So we're in the top five. So Spice World's number five. Number four absolutely does not belong on this list. And we will talk about this film. It's uh, Howard the Duck. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Howard the Duck is ultimately like, no, it's not a great movie, but it's super watchable it's and super fun. It's a classic. Yeah. It's not It's not one of the worst classic films ever is, made. Classic is a stretch, but uh, I own it on 4K, so I guess I have there to say you go. somewhat there, of a classic. Yeah, there you go. Uh, number three is Batman and Robin, which I, I do agree with that one. <laughs> that movie. It's fun, though. It's fun, I, but man, is it terrible. Unlike Howard the Duck, which is classy, right? Yeah. Um, okay. We're top two. Can, can you, do you have a guess? I'm going to, I'm going to name it number two and I have a guess number one. Okay. Okay. Number two is wild, wild west with, okay. Uh, Will Smith. Will Smith. Okay. What, what do you think? Number one is, uh, I'm trying to think when it came out, if it was after, because this was 2001, right? Yeah, this list came out in 2001. So the room is not on it because I think that came out in 03. Uh, Birdemic is probably after that too. So what? It's got to be. We will talk about this one. It is probably one of the most infamously bad films ever made. We got to talk about it someday. What is it? It's Battlefield Earth. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes. Our Scientology movie. Oh, yeah. Starring John oh, Travolta. Yeah. Kelly Preston. We do, have to yeah. do, we do have to do that. Yeah. We have to talk about Battlefield Earth. There's there's a, a cheap Blu-ray out on Battlefield Earth right now. So if, if it goes on sale for Black Friday, you should pick it up because it's it's coming next year, man. Yeah, it's coming next year. Yeah, we can't we can't dodge that bullet for that much longer. <clears throat> so is this so this, those are 19 better films than Ishtar. Yeah, we will debate that. But um I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, some of these obviously don't belong on here. I have a question for you. So, I mean, you and I have a love for bad films. Uh huh. Um, I think we have a love for bad action horror films more than anything. Is that fair? Yeah, or just bad action films in general. Yeah, I love bad action films. So, what? <laughs> what is the distinguishing? One factor? of my favorite movies has a scene where a woman pours v8 all over herself like the you know oh yeah that's that's pretty amazing <laughs> ninja <laughs> three the domination <laughs> yes, exactly so um yes. i i just what makes a film so bad that you can enjoy it versus you come across a bad film and you go yeah that's a stinker it does deserve to be called the worst film ever and you're you just pray you never have to watch it again like what what's yeah. What's the factor that determines what falls into one category or the other? It's hard to say. For me, what is the entertainment value in some of this stuff? Like Waterworld, not a great movie, right? But it's got something there that makes it kind of fun to watch. Uh, we did last November some real big turkeys. Oh, that was uh, that Miami was a Connection. Whole, yeah, Miami Connection is like by every measure – 
of what is a quality film worse than Ishtar? Acting, script, budget, it, yes, effects. It's the talent behind the the yes. camera and in front of the camera is nowhere Every near quantitative the talent. Yes. way you can measure the quality of a film. It is worse. And it is 1,000 times better than Ishtar. Absolutely. It is It is way more fun. I would say Samurai Cop, way more fun. Yes. It's just There's just something about it. They lean into the fact that they don't have a lot of money, but there could be high-budget films that are bad, too, that are fun to watch. Uh, I think be, because of the fact that Matthew Broderick is so weird in Godzilla, it actually makes that film kind of watchable. Yeah, um, I'd agree with that. And, and I think that's you just kind of need like one or two things that kind of pull you in. Um, and Matthew Broderick again for like for Godzilla, it's his performance. Like this is really weird. Like you're obsessed with these worms that are like getting bigger because of radiation, and it's just it's an odd choice to have you in this movie. Um, but it's hard to say, man. Uh, because then you think about a film like Machete. Remember when Machete came out, it was trying to be that it's so bad, it's good. It's that grindhouse sort of thing. Yeah. And to me, when you try so hard, it doesn't really work. Um, there, Machete is fine, but I don't think it's as fun as they think it is, you know? Yeah, it's it's good. I, I think there is a difference between paying homage to like a bad film versus uh-huh. trying to replicate it. And capture well, the and charm. We also brought up like the room. Tommy Wiseau set out to make the greatest film he could ever think of in his in his mind. Yeah, he is insane, and I love it for it. But the room is weird and convoluted, and there are scenes that you're like, has this person ever had a natural conversation with anyone in their entire life? But I would watch the room a hundred times out of a hundred over Ishtar to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it really comes down to when you come across a film and it has this identity that sets itself, uh, from everything else you're watching of that genre. Right. So here's the thing. I, I think action films, horror films, science fiction, comedy, drama, whatever it is, the room obviously is a drama, but it has this, texture to it from a film perspective that sets it apart from everything else in that category. It's memorable and it comes down to, it could be fun. It could be fascinating, but it, but it has whatever adjective you want to label it. It's something outside of vanilla, plain, homogenous, whatever you want to call it. Right? So it's, it's that film you run across and you go, wow, I haven't seen something like this before. And either the the incompetency is is so far off the level that it elevates it to like this charm, right? Mm-hmm. And it it's really easy for me to give a film a pass if you see an artist really putting themselves out there versus a studio or an actor or a director going for uh, I, I guess the money, right? The box office money. Yeah. And, and that's, that's my problem. And, and with I guess a lot you're, of, gra- you're great. You're grading on two different scales there too, right? It, it is. It's totally subjective. I mean, I, and, and again, when you talk about like the worst films of the 20th century, you and I can sit here and go the Blair, Witch, which made number nine on this list, or even showgirls is number eight. 
in my opinion, neither of these films <laughs> deserve to be on any kind of worst movie of all time list. No. But I could no, totally see even. somebody coming across this and going, I absolutely didn't like these two films. I mean, the great thing about film is it's subjective. And as much crap as you and I give each other over the stuff that we like, we know it it really does come down to, you know, personal taste and some things hit you and they don't hit me or vice versa. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, I don't know. There's there's just I mean, hell, we both bought New York Ninja this week. We did. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, a film that I watched uh this weekend, which really made this this weekend terrible, is I had to watch Ishtar, but uh I I was forced to watch Red Notice with Dwayne the Rock Johnson, Gal Gadot, Ryan Reynolds. And I believe that film has a hundred and sixty million dollar budget. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible because it, there's nothing exciting about it. There's nothing funny. Well, that's a paint by numbers movie. It's right. Yeah. And I think that's what makes like, if, if you bore me to tears and you give me something that is so predictable and just mind numbing and even visually, like I, I don't mind like a good action film that is paint by numbers, as long as it's trying to do the best at what it's trying to do. Red notice to me is very much a, Dwayne the Rock Johnson saying, I'm going to pl- play into my public persona. Ryan Reynolds is going to do his shtick. Gal Gadot, I- I'm convinced after Wonder Woman 84 in this film, she uh, she can't act worth uh, to save her life. I-, I think she is absolutely She's getting poor. worse. She's getting worse. Like, ne- she was yes. fine ne- in Fast and Furious and stuff like that when I saw her earlier. And yeah. even in the first Wonder Woman film, I thought she was okay because it's mostly action. I yes. think she does better with action. Um yeah, she's getting worse. She yeah. has zero we, charm in in Wonder Woman eighty four and in this role. Like it's terrible. The Stones. What about the Stones? But yeah, you and I were kind of defeated by films this weekend. Um, I had to watch Clifford the Big Red Dog, which is uh, a travesty for family films. It's. <laughs> I, I will say this. I will say that the Paw Patrol movie that I that came out earlier this a little while ago, a few months ago, much better film. Um, and. I just think, I don't know. And this thing had, we were talking today, I think it's probably a $100 million film. That is amazing uh, to me. Like $100 million to make this crap that at the end of the day, I mean, I see all these comments of people going, oh, I thought it was okay, et cetera. And I'm like, hey, for $100 million, a movie shouldn't be okay, in, in yeah. my opinion. Now, if you're spending 20 or $30 million and it's and, and you get something like, Ishtar or Red, fine. But with these big budgets and the talent and everything behind the camera, in front of the camera, you, you're you don't get to be okay, in my opinion. No, no, you're you're with that big of an investment, uh, you better hit it out of the park. Which makes me kind of sad <laughs> because uh, you have these hundred million dollar, hundred sixty million dollar films, and if they don't do well, then you know, studios go out of money or they go out of business and then they're bought by somebody else. And then this, you know, the conglomerates and mega corporations and all this stuff that is shrinking our movies. So like, you know, cause at some point in time, accountants will start making movies cause they'll just say, well, we can't do this. We can't do that. Cause it's not going to make money. I don't want everything to be Marvel. No, I agree. But I mean, I think culturally too, and I, and this is a camp, a comment for like the international films culturally, we're in a very conservative time period where everybody mm-hmm. is going to put the thing out there that doesn't offend anybody. 
I mean, in China, you know, they've got a law out there now that basically pretty much stopped the release of a lot of older Chinese films and the new stuff that's coming out the door. It has to meet a specific criteria and has to be very much pro-government or else it's not going to get made, much less shown. And in the U.S., you're not going to tackle you're going to get movies like Red Notice or Clifford because they don't offend anybody. They don't push the boundaries of anything. And in fact, it's it's so I mean, paid I was, by the I numbers. I was offended by Clifford, but you know, well, that's because you have taste. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, I mean, we're we're and all of this stuff is cyclical. I mean, I think I honestly think we're a couple of years, if not maybe five plus years away from. I think an independent film surge where we're going to see some new voices start to emerge and blow everybody out of the water. Which you know, that's what we need. You, you got to live with this. I don't know, junk. Food. Yeah, it's a, the, industry, the film industry has always ebbed and flowed. It's, yeah. it's just a natural cycle of it, and we are we're still getting great films every once in a while. Um, there's so much choices, you know. It, it's hard, but the streaming stuff. I, I, I honestly, I, I, I'm just not I excited a little about. Bit, yeah, I'm done with I'm it. I'm getting less and less excited about stuff that's coming on streaming for sure, um, because I know. Outside of something like The Five Bloods, which Netflix did, which I think is one of the best movies I've seen in the past five years, uh, I really haven't been blown away by stuff that's like exclusive to streaming. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, uh, for January, we usually reserve that for, you know, what of our what of our favorite films that we kind of want to champion that bombed in the previous year. So uh, it's it's so hard to, in my opinion, it's so hard to pick films for 2021 because even the ones that I've really enjoyed a lot, they never to me got to this point where I would just shout on the rooftop. Like this is the best thing I've seen. Mm, yeah. I do have one. You do have Dune, one. Dune is the one. Okay. Dune is the one. And and that one seems to be doing pretty good. So I don't know if that's going to be a bomb or not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I did read an article that the new James Bond film needed somewhere between 800 and 900 million dollars to break even. So yeah, it's I'm not like, getting. What there. are we even doing? What are we even doing? So, <laughs> well, let's let's go in the way back machine back to 1987 when we had some Academy Award winning folks decided to get together and do a classic <laughs> in, the <desert. laughs> in the desert, do a classic sort of um, Crosby and Hope road movie, right? Being Crosby, Bob Hope. And uh, they put a little project together called Ishtar. So, Brad, you want to kind of talk about the financials and what, I don't know, the scope of the land was like when this thing came out? Yeah. Yeah. So you said 1987. So that's May 15th, 1987 was when this was released with a reported budget of $51 million. It grosses a grand total of $14.4 million. Wow. Um, I believe, though, Troy... This is the first time we've had a film on not a bomb rank number one. It's opening weekend. Really? Which is, you know, surprising, but we'll get into why that is. Uh, Ishtar opened. It's uh, opened at number one, like I said, with uh, $4.33 million. Um, it beat out a film called The Gate, the oh. Canadian <laughs> horror film. The Gate had a $100,000 budget. Um, and it's opening weekend. It makes four point two five eight million dollars. So just right hey, under. It's still making tons of money today with all the different Blu-ray versions that they yeah. keep releasing. Oh yeah, I, I yeah. own the gate, and it got a sequel, times. didn't it? Right, two or three sequels. I believe. 
yes, yeah. Uh, the Gate, better movie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Just heads up, a hundred, hundred up. times over. Uh, yeah, so this is the first time I believe we've we've done a film that opened uh, number one. So, um, it it didn't uh, stay that, number one very long, didn't it? Did not, it did not stay number one. Let me actually look because I'm I'm curious on what it did the next. Oh no, it yeah. It I, was. Uh, I thought uh, fourth. It, it was the fourth uh, highest grossing the, the weekend after that. So yeah, didn't Beverly so Hills film, top two Beverly or something? Hills two, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, we'll get into those. Uh, so here's where I was surprised. I knew it was a. Last week I said floppy, which I. Still <laughs> I love that. That was. It's a floppy oh, film. Yeah, floppy film. Uh, this is uh, another reason why. Uh, I always thought this film was probably way like the critics were way more harsh on this film than actually they are. Um, it sits at a 37% on Rotten Tomatoes okay, with an audit score of 39. Um, I always heard this is one of the worst films of all time. So I was like, oh, I'm expecting it in the single digits. So I was surprised when I saw 37. Um, I know Roger Eberts and Siskel thought this was a big pile of trash. Um, yeah, I think they... they- both- Picked it, it. picked it as one of the worst films of that worst, year, right? Yeah, the year. Yes, yes. Um, back in 1987, in the month of May, you could have seen films such as, we get to the very, very top here. Like you said, Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, The Gate, like we talked about. Um, a film called Hot Pursuit. You remember the film Hot Pursuit? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Okay. Um, then we have some some uh bangers here we have american ninja 2 which oh is amazing <laughs> yep creep show 2 and return to salem's lots oh wow yeah so lots of sequels that month um but yeah i think uh i think there was a lot of films that i would have rather have seen before ishtar yes um, so those are those are the films of may of 1987 well before we get into all the stories behind the scenes about Ishtar, because there's some fun ones. There's a lot. There is a lot. It, we can't get to those sco- stories until we talk about the people that worked on this thing behind the camera and also showed up in front of the camera. So we always start with the director and who wrote the screenplay. In this case, it was Elaine May. Now, uh, she hasn't done a lot of films. In fact, Ishtar was the last movie that she directed. We'll talk about why. But leading up to that, she had directed A New Leaf in 71, The Heartbreak Kid in 72, uh, Mikey and Nikki in 76, mm-hmm. and then uh, Ishtar in 87. So you're yeah. asking, well, what, what did she do in between there? She was also known as a writer. And so she you know, did the screenplay for A New Leaf, which she also directed. Uh, same year, she did the screenplay for Such Good Friends. She worked on Heaven Can Wait in 1978 with Warren Beatty. So he started. She was also she was also an actress too. I don't know if you're going to get into that too, but she is she was an actress before all that too. Yeah, not not so much a leading actress, but probably another sort of a character actress. Yes, Mm -hmm. Um, she had now Dustin Hoffman. She starts a relationship, a working relationship with, by doing sort of an uncredited screenplay rewrites on Tootsie, which was a huge hit in '82, plus won a bunch of awards. Uh, she also uh, wrote Ishtar. Now, she hasn't directed anything since then, but she did screenplays like The Birdcage in 1996, Primary Colors in 1998, 
And they took her screenplay for Heaven Can Wait and redid it. And it became a film in 2001 called Down to Earth with Chris Rock. So that's sort of the remake of Heaven Can Wait. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, now on this – oh, you were going to say something? I was just I, – I think we can't rush past the fact that Eileen May was a big-time – well, she got, she got some big checks. Uh, yes. In the eight, well, she got some big checks to direct films as a female, which around this time didn't happen all the time. Like this was a rarity in Hollywood that a female was getting essentially a blank check to to make a film. No, that's a good point. I mean, she was a pretty big talent in the seventies and eighties, working for the studio. And I, I would say they relied on her heavily for a lot of screenplay work because I know she yeah. also got some uncredited work for Reds with Warren Beatty, which again was sort of an Oscar winner. So yeah, Labyrinth as well, I think is is another one of her uncredited. Yeah, uh, she she has a pedigree of working behind the scenes on a lot of big films that, from a box office perspective, did really well, but also had some gravitas to him and, and ended up taking some Oscars home, right? Are, are you familiar with a lot of her work directing? Because I am not. Yeah, Corporate Kid is the only film I've ever seen outside of Ishtar. That, and that would be the same for me. I mean, I know most of the – I've seen most of the films that she's written outside of the ones that she wrote and directed. Yep. But um, – and, and I loved Heaven Can Wait. I remember seeing that as a kid, not really understanding it. But then um, later on, discovering it again and, and really liked it a lot. I think I think Heartbreak Kid is a good movie. Yeah, I, I will I agree say that it is a good movie. The other thing to keep in mind, so the, the whole idea of this film, Ishtar, is it's about these two sort of bumbling idiots who are trying to start a music career. So uh, Elaine May also helped write the original songs with Paul Williams. Are you familiar with Paul Williams? I'm not. Okay, Paul Williams. Have you seen a little film called Phantom of the Paradise from 1974? Maybe no. Okay. How about, uh, uh, okay. Smoking the bandit. Do you oh, remember yes, yes. big enus so and little enus? Yes. Okay. Little enus is Paul Williams. Okay. So he did a lot All of right. acting. He was in one of the bad enus, right? Enus. Enus. Yeah. He okay. did one of the, uh, I, I want to say it was a battle for the planet of the apes. He, he was an actor too, but he's more known for his songwriting because he also worked on the Muppet movie, 1979. Um, okay. Had a had a very prolific career in the late '70s as a songwriter and artist, but I'm surprised you haven't seen Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, that came out a year before Rocky Horror. It's directed by Brian De Palma, so it's the musical, and um, Paul Williams is sort of the bad guy in that. And he wrote the music for that as well. I love Paul Williams. He's old fashioned love song. You've heard that song. That's probably yes, one of his big. Okay, that's yep. Paul Williams. Yep. All right. Okay. Um, so there's some pedigree there and, and he was asked to actually write full songs for the movie and they were only going to use snippets of this, um, within, you know, different scenes, et cetera. But he wrote an entire soundtrack for the film. Thankfully, the soundtrack was never released. We'll talk about how much of a blessing <laughs> that was for the universe here in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cinematography. This is impressive. Vittorio yes. Storaro, I think. Mm -hmm. He did, you're going to love this, Brad, 1970. Just listen to some of the, my favorite films he did. The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Dario Argento, 1970. Cinematography for that. Um, in 1979, he won an Oscar for Apocalypse Now. He also won another Oscar in 1981 for Reds, which he worked on with Warren Beatty. 
he did Lady Hawk in 85. So just to show he was doing other stuff other than, you know, Oscar stuff. Turned around, won a third Oscar in 1987 for The Last Emperor and continued to work with Beatty on, you know, such movies as like Dick Tracy in 1990, Bullworth in 98, and also did a lot of Woody Allen films like in, you know, 2016, 2018. So he did like Cafe Society. This is bro, a, bro has three Academy Awards. Let's three Academy like Awards. Three Academy Awards for yeah. cinematography. That's impressive. And he lends this sucker. Um, the third assistant director, Lee Cleary, had worked on, get this, in 1997, he was the first assistant director for Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Mm. There you go. Okay. And uh, 2002's The Tuxedo with Jaggy Chan. See, I'm always, wow. always looking for okay. that Jaggy Chan reference. So we have some Mortal Kombat references and Jackie Chan. Good for you. Yes, but hey, I didn't leave you out of this. So we're going to talk about. I'm going to I'm going to give one compliment to this film, and it's the camels. So the oh, camels okay. in this film are fantastic. Uh, probably was that f- camel really blind? Do you I don't think it was uh, really blind. I don't know, but it was because hilar- if that camel was acting blind, he acted the shit out of it and I gave know. that camel an Academy Award. It is my favorite part of the film. Uh, but yeah, the camel trainers are Buford Randall and Paul Reynolds. You'll know Paul Reynolds from his work on the beast master in 1982, mm-hmm. Indiana Jones and the last crusade in 89 beast master three, the eye of Braxis. I totally forgot that there was more than one beast master. Um, but he's worked on some films that we've talked about before the 13th warrior in 99 okay. speed racer in 2008. And this one's for you, Brad. He was the animal trainer on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 2019. Wow. There you go. Awesome. Man. So so we have people that worked on both Jackie Chan movies and Quentin Tarantino films and won Academy Awards. And uh, that's that's an impressive. We have Warren Beatty. We have Dustin Hoffman. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about the people in front of the camera. We've got Warren Beatty as Lyle Rogers. Now, I thought this was interesting. So I, I think... I, what do you, let me ask you this. Warren Beatty, what was the first film you kind of recognize like Warren Beatty as as somebody like a big deal? Well, I mean, to be fair, I was born in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, so but, but it wasn't it when when you're kind of coming to movies, when when did you kind of discover Warren Beatty as kind of like, oh, he's he's sort of a prolific director? Director or actor? Well, either. Yeah. Uh I mean, Bonnie and Clyde probably is my first that, kind of big one. Yeah, that, I would say that's the one for me too. I mean, he did that and, in '67. And directing would be probably Reds. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, I'd, I'd seen Dick Tracy, Bugsy. I'd always liked those films in the early '90s. And then that was going to be my like my first knee jerk, like, oh, it was my first Warren Beatty film was Dick Tracy. But no, when it was going back, it was Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. So I mean, he's he's done some. He he won an Oscar for best director for his work on reds. He was nominated for actor, uh, but he did that in 1981 and he didn't do another film until Ishtar in 87. So there was, you know, six years that uh, he wasn't putting out any product. Then we come to Dustin Hoffman as Chuck Clark. Again, this is super interesting. So, you know, Hoffman's doing Kramer versus Kramer in 79 Tootsie in 82. He was nominated for an Oscar for best actor uh, really doesn't do anything. He did a TV movie, Death of a Salesman, in 85, but really theatrically from 82 to 87, nothing, and then does Ishtar. Uh, well, you, it, left out the, you left out in 19, what, 67? I mean, in the 60s, he 
I mean, he was the grad. I mean, the graduate was like, Oh yeah, he was huge. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm talking yeah. like to me, Dustin Hoffman All around this area. Yeah. Yeah. Around this area. Cause both him and Warren Beatty just were not uh, very active leading up to Ishtar. They yeah. weren't retired, but they weren't doing a lot of stuff. And like you said, 60s, 70s. I mean, these guys were all over the place, right? So he does Tootsie, gets nominated, doesn't really do anything, does a TV movie, comes back for Ishtar in 87. And then the next year, Rain Man comes out and he wins an Oscar for Best Actor. And then, Which I just, we talked about Rain Man. What did we talk Rain Man on? Something? I don't know. You it came out in 88. It, it yeah. came out in 1988. And I was saying, oh, I hadn't seen Rain Man in a long time. I need to go back and look, watch it. And I'm like, oh, okay, this movie is fantastic. Oh, that's when we talked uh, about The Blob, I think. Yes. Because yep, we, were, we yep. were discussing 1988 being like one of the greatest years ever for film. Yeah. 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 Dustin Hoffman and Jackie Chan together in what film, Troy? Dustin Hoffman and Jackie Chan. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. I can't even think Ooh, of Am I going to sub you? You're going to stump me. You? Yeah. It wouldn't well, be. I, um, oh, go ahead. No. Do, do you have any guess at all? Uh, it would it, it, have to be one of his American stuff. So the only thing I can think of is like around the world in 80 days. Kung Fu Panda, my friend. Oh, my God. That's right. See? Yes. Yeah, the animated film. You're right. Yeah. Damn. See? I don't, I don't think about the obvious stuff. To be fair, you gave my son that for a gift, and we do watch it quite a bit. So. Good. A, I hate you, but B, you know, well, thank whatever. you. But yeah, you know. that's that's awesome. Yeah. Um, Isabel Ajani as Shira Assel. I don't. I, I really looked at her filmography, and the only movie that popped up was Possession from 1981, which totally freaked me out. I never want to watch that film again. That one with her and Sam Neill. Wasn't she in the Diabolique remake? Yes. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah. But Possession. Have you seen Possession? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that movie. I, I guess it's getting a re-release. It's been playing in some theaters. Mm-hmm. I guess some yeah. 4K version of it's coming out, which I never, ever want to see a 4K version of that film. But you'll buy it. You'll buy it. I will not buy it. You don't understand. That's like Solo, the Criterion, that, that Criterion disc. I watched it one time. I will never watch that film again. Charles Grodin is Jim Harrison, which I love Charles Grodin. Um, Heaven Can Wait, 1978. Yep. I, my favorite Charles Grodin film, though, is uh, Midnight Run in 88. I don't know yes, about you. Yes, I think that's everyone's favorite. I think so, yeah. too. He just recently passed not long ago. I think it was in May, sadly. Was it this year? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You're right. Yeah, I know. Time. What is time? But I know. He, he this year. passed away in 2021. You know, a couple other names I want to throw out there. Jack Weston is Marty Freed. His television credits go back to 1951. But I always remember him from a Burt Reynolds film in 76 called Gator, which I absolutely love. Oh, yes. Yeah, yep, he's, yep. he's he's shown up in tons of films. You would When you see his face, you know him. Yeah, he's kind of like a, a, a that guy. Yeah, he's that guy. And then uh, she's only in it for like five minutes, but Carol Kane as Carol, who was in The Princess Bride and Scrooge. Uh, I, she's a great actress. I think she's been on Cheers before, stuff like that, but... Man, you, you have that talent like Carol Kane and use her for five minutes and she's not yeah. in the movie anymore. Boy, yeah, that's so wasted. It's more of like a cameo. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the making of this film because it's way more interesting than probably our thoughts on the film. So Beatty went to Columbia Pictures and talked to the the head guy, head production guy. His, his name is actually Guy McKellen. And quote, he says, anything she wants, period. That's my negotiating position. So like you said, Brad, pretty much saying she needs a blank check, right? And it's because of him working with her on some past projects. And he really wanted to make sure 
that she got something that she could have sort of total creative control and that he would back it. Yeah. So they worked really well together too, right, Troy? No. So, but uh, (laughs) despite the prospect of having two big stars on the same project with a well-regarded writer, the head production guy did not immediately approve it. He was worried, and this kind of goes into what you're talking about here. He was worried about the effects of having Beatty, Hoffman, and May on the same set, all three of them, since they were known to be perfectionist. So apparently they're a little bit difficult to work with. May in particular had a reputation for shooting as much raw footage as Beatty himself or Stanley Kubrick. But yeah, and and to be fair, there have been some great directors who have been complete assholes on set. Yes. Like, like Kubrick is a notorious asshole. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, William Friedkin is another one. Yes, exactly. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock, like there's great filmmakers who are complete and utter jerks on sets. It's a part of their thing. Uh, I think when you sign up to work with these people, you know that going in. Um, May had that reputation as well. I just want to say that, like, yes, people can be difficult on sets, but there have been great men directors who have uh, been labeled this and still got to direct films after they even had films that maybe didn't do as well as other people thought. So, oh, absolutely. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a person thing, not a gender thing. Uh, and, yes. and I, it almost yes. falls into that CEO narcissistic personality that you run across sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I would be that same way because everything you attach the director unjustly to films. And if it does bad, the director gets blamed mm-hmm. rightfully so. And unrightfully. So the film does well, uh, the director gets all the praise rightfully so and unrightfully so. So there's so much weight on their shoulders that I can understand wanting to be in control because ultimately it all comes back to you. No one cares who the cinematographer is. Yes. One uh, in people, one, no, no. The average <laughs> movie person does not care who the cinematographer is. I don't is. They think they want to know is, is Steven Spielberg, the director? Yes or no. Is Stanley Kubrick the director, yes or no? I think studios are very good at creating a brand out of a director. It's easier to create a brand out of a director than a cinematographer and everything else. However, you see it too. From the makers who brought you whatever, here's this film. So I think studios will take the success of anybody behind the camera and put that all over the poster and the advertising. But I, I agree with you. The yeah, director, but no one's gonna like the the advertising isn't gonna say edited by Sally Minky. Like that's not gonna be a thing. As great as she was, that's not going to be. A I, I agree with you 100 percent. But I, I would also say that, uh, you know, it, go, it goes back to some of these comments about these directors who get in hot water. And then all of a sudden somebody says, well, I'm never, I'm never watching that film anymore. That, that's one person out of like three yeah. or four hundred people. And well, then that also bothers me, too, when like an actor comes out and says, well, I don't really like I didn't I hate that movie looking back on it or whatever. I'm like, dude, thousands of people worked on that film, <laughs> yeah, just, worked longer hours than you made 15 bucks an hour and were away from their families just so they could have benefits. Like, yes. Knock it off on. You didn't like that experience. OK, like the caterer is not going to be sympathetic to you. So or or the camel trainer. Anything. Yes. I hate that more than anything. Well, so Columbia Pictures uh, was afraid that the property would be a hit for another studio if they passed. And Beatty, now keep in mind, we just talked about Beatty and Hoffman and even May. If you look at their resume leading up to this, I mean, it's super good. So they had uh, commercial success. They had award success. 
And, you know, they, they said, fine, blank check, right? Now, to give you an example of May in terms of her directing, she shot 108 hours of raw footage. 108 hours of this film exists somewhere, which is mind-blowing, okay? And this film, while it was being made, I mean, the production had so many problems. The cost of everything spiraled, just spiraled out of control, right? I found a few stories that I thought were funny. To give well, even a, before, even before you get to that, like just to have Beatty and Hoffman on the payroll was yes. huge. That that was so, a big deal. Yes. Yeah, they had, yeah. they had to fork out a lot of money to get those. And um, but but here's some examples of how bad things were were behind the scenes. Okay, so the film's animal trainer. Since we were talking about like the camels and stuff, I, I this this is hilarious. The trainer went looking for a blue eyed camel in the Morocco market. Okay, and found one he considered perfect. But he chose not to buy it right away, expecting he could find others and use that knowledge to bargain with the first trader for a better price. He did not realize that blue-eyed camels were rare. I didn't know that either. And he could not find another camel good enough. When he returned, this is the sequel to Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's with camels. Um, yep. When he returned to the first trader, uh, that guy had eaten the blue-eyed camel, so they couldn't use it. <laughs> Wait, he ate it? He ate it. <laughs> I didn't know you could eat camel. I didn't either. But he returned to the first trader who had <laughs> had eaten the camel, so they had to keep go going to look for the perfect camel. I didn't expect you to say he ate it. He, wow. ate, okay. he ate the camel. Okay. So that's a great. So that's some research. Good job, Troy. Yeah. Another frequently related incident told by the production designer, Paul Seilbert. Um, it was disputed by others on the film, but here it is. Concerns uh, the dunes where scenes with Beatty and Hoffman lost in the desert would be shot. Seilbert had scouted dunes in the United States and Morocco, but none seemed to fit the vision of May who was very uncomfortable in the desert environment. She suffered from toothaches that she refused to have treated locally and took extensive measures to shelter herself from the harsh sun, not only spending much of her time under a large parasol, but wearing large sunglasses and wrapping her face in a white gauze veil to the point that her appearance was compared to a Star Wars stormtrooper. After one successful search for dunes, Silbert says May suddenly announced she wanted a flat landscape instead. It took 10 days to level an area of a square mile. Oh. So they stopped shooting just for 10 days so that they could get that landscape. Um, here's some more stories. The director remained aloof from the film's editing staff, taking copious notes during her dailies, but refusing to share them with anybody. As Columbia had feared, she had shot a large amount of films. So we talked about like 108 hours and reportedly in one instance, calling for 50 takes, 50 takes of vultures landing next to Beatty and Hoffman, 50 takes of just vultures landing. So <laughs> that animal trainer was pissed. I guarantee he's the hardest working man on the set. So they returned back to New York to shoot some other scenes after they're done in the desert. Beatty goes back to Columbia CEO, Faye Vincent, and basically says, look, May cannot direct. She's a horrible director. Like, but also before you get too far ahead, you're skipping over like all the political tension that's going on where they're shooting this film. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. we're we're talking about the internal stuff, but yeah, there's tons of political tension <laughs> because of where they're shooting it. But I I just found these stories fascinating because these are the inner politics between 
the people on the set. Um, so we're not talking about the government stuff like that. So Beatty goes back to Columbia. Well, there was, I, I read somewhere where there was rumors that they were going to try to like kidnap Dustin Hoffman at one point in time. Yeah. Terrorists were. Yep. Tons of that stuff went on. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's the stuff that you can't necessarily control. I just think it's fascinating to look at these stories where they have total control over it because it's a budget. I mean, these are all stories where somebody just wouldn't say no to, to any of these three, right? Well, she, I mean, they had to they had to go out to the real Sierra Desert to film this, to do yes. this film. And yeah, so you're opening yourself up for stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. especially through this this time frame in the 80s. So they, so they get back from the desert and Beatty goes, man, that was a horrible experience. He's complaining to the Columbia CEO and says she can't direct. And so Columbia's like, well, let's fire her. We'll get rid of her. You direct her. We'll find another one. He rejected firing her because it would hurt his image as a supporter of women's rights. So he said, no way. I'm going to look bad for that. Not uh, because he supported women's rights. He just didn't want to appear. He to did not. not yes. Women's rights. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And um, they basically, you know, he basically said that him and Hoffman would leave if she was replaced. Uh, but he came up with an idea. He proposed instead that every scene be shot twice his way in May's effectively doubling the movie's cost. So the reason why it costs so much is not only these incidents of, you know, hey, I found this camel. It's not good enough. But then somebody ate the camel. And then I want sand dunes. Nope. I want to I want a level landscape. Well, it's 10 days to do that. But it got to the point where tensions were so bad on the set that Beatty was like, we'll shoot scenes my way and we'll shoot scenes her way. So that's 108 hours of her footage plus whatever else was shot um, with Beatty as well. So this is the stuff going on behind the scenes. And uh, it gets worse. So before the release, market research led Columbia Pictures to believe the film would fail. So they they saw the writing on the wall. Its head of marketing, Peter Seeley, advised the studio to minimize its losses by cutting the film's advertising budget. Instead, Columbia spent even more to promote the film, afraid of pissing off Beatty and Hoffman. Doubling down. Yes. So the film's reception was so awful that it helped coin a new Hollywood term in relation to writer and director Elaine May. It's called movie jail. The term referred to someone whose perceived failure as a director was so profound, they would not be allowed to helm a movie again for a very long time, if ever, right? And in fact, she hasn't directed a film since then. So here's something else that's pretty interesting. As a result of the losses it suffered from the film and negative publicity, Coca-Cola, because if you remember late 80s, they were trying to get into the film business, right? They reevaluated its decision to enter into the movie business, and it spun its entertainment holdings into a separate company called Columbia Pictures Entertainment, which is now Sony Pictures Entertainment. And um, Coca-Cola held 49% of the stock. And so two years later, they, they sold it to Sony. Now, what's weird is the, the film did, I guess, um, even though it had overwhelming negative reception when it got released, it did have three successful screenings. So the studio was a little torn on this because the marketing is getting information and saying it's going to totally bomb. And then the screenings were being had and everybody goes, uh, yeah, it's pretty good. And so even to this day, Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Charles Grodin, they defend the film's quality and they blame its bad reputation because of the reports of what was happening during the filming, right? And the budgetary problems, which had leaked to the press. 
And um, they're, they're basically saying that the studio head at that time, who really disliked Beatty, had it in for him. And that's, that's who leaked all this stuff. And so everybody was just looking for, you know, a target and they found one with Beatty cause he, he wasn't really known as a, as a likable guy with critics, et cetera. Yeah. Yep. So, um, <clears throat> it, it was sort of easy to, to see that, you know, you poor little chum and blood in the water. Here come the sharks, right? I found that you'll like this one. Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright are all fans of this film. Scorsese called it one of his favorite movies. Can you, can you believe that? Well, says he says that about a lot of like he's got some weird takes when it comes to movies, but hey, he's got a different appreciation on film than I do. So, well, this is the I'm guy sure who goes it. out there and says Ishtar is fantastic and says all the Marvel movies are crap. Well, he says they're all kind of the same. Like he's got a point for what he says. Like I, I get his point on it. It does sound like an old man yelling at the kids to get off his lawn, but yeah, I get it. Yeah, no, no, no. This, this is, this is, I don't know, Alzheimer's setting in on Scorsese <laughs> if he's championing Ishtar over Captain America. But, anyways, Ishtar was nominated for three Golden Raspberry Awards. We, I love these awards. We talk about these all the time, including Worst Picture and Worst Screenplay. It didn't win those. Uh, it did win Worst Director for Elaine May. Or, uh, Elaine May. Uh, she tied with Norman Mailer for Tough Guys Don't Dance. Ishtar was also nominated for Worst Picture at the 1987 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, which we stocked, you know, we already talked about the stinker list. It's 20 on the worst movies of all time. Um, do you know what movie beat it in 1987 as the worst film, according to the Golden Raspberry Awards? I don't. I don't. I'm curious. Leonard Part 6 with Bill Cosby. Oh. Isn't that crazy? Now. Yeah. Another film beat it for worst film that year, according to the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards in 1987. This shocked me. 1987, they said this film was worse than Ishtar. It is none other than the classic Spaceballs. Oh, get out of here. Yes. <laughs> get out. Yes. Wow. Spaceballs is worse than Ishtar, according to that website. No. Yeah. On the stunt double joke alone, Spaceballs is better than this film. Spaceballs. And one joke. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's there's a couple of jokes that are better than the entire Ishtar. So is it is it Tabitha who saw Spaceballs? No, it was, it was her sister saw Our Spaceballs sister. Okay. before Star Wars. And then uh, when she saw confused. Star Wars, she thought she didn't like Star Wars because she thought it was an unfunny Spaceballs, which okay. makes total sense. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, this film, so, you know, I concentrated more on the production stuff, but like you said, they're, they're filming over in Egypt, you know, they filmed all over and there's a lot of political tension going on in the late eighties. So you're in this foreign land and, and there are tons of stories. They have problems with camera equipment and instead of having it just shipped over, they ended up sending a guy back to the United States to pick up the camera. So they fly him over and then fly him back. So I, I think everybody was just crazy on this film, but it, it was a little bit of crazy and a lot of ego that got in the way why the production ballooned. Mm -hmm. And as soon as these stories started coming out, everybody got a hold of them and they were basically saying it was destined to bomb. So it makes total sense why this thing came out and didn't do so well. But now the question is, well, before, before, let me, let me yeah. just jump in just real fast. Yeah, of course. I think this was one of the first, times when I was going back and doing research that people started to realize 
the amount of money being reported for budgets for films. When you, when they talked about Ishtar in all the magazines and all that, it's this movie costs X amount of dollars and it's got all this pressure to make money back. Like the talk for this movie before it was even out was how much it costs. Yes. Um, and, and all the problems think, that were happening because the problems, and all the problems. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because they go hand in hand. Yeah. Hey, they're spending so much money on this movie and he's got all this problems. So I think this is kind of the first time that people start to realize just how much money it goes into making films. Um, and so when, you know, it opens up at $4 million the opening weekend, people are saying, Oh, you know, this is going to be one of the biggest Hollywood bombs of all time. And, and th- this is kind of where, the genesis of this show comes is this is kind of your prototypical like genesis of the bomb in a, in a way. Um, it is I, bombs I, before, but this is the first one that people started to notice. And the bad buzz was around just how much, not just how bad the movie was, but how much money it had lost. They, that talk was there as, Oh, this movie's bad and it's losing so much money for the studio. Yeah, and and when this came out, I'll be honest with you, I never saw it in the theaters because it never interested me. And as many times, yeah, no, but as many times as it played on HBO at the time, this was actually my first time watch of ever seeing it, which is why we picked it for November. I've always stayed cleared away from this thing. It wasn't the first film that I started noticing talk about a film before it came out. I think for me, that was Waterworld. So yeah, that was a big one. Yes. Yeah. Um, You started hearing these stories about, Hey, Kevin Costner is doing this film. They built this set in the ocean and it sank and they have to rebuild it. And even before that thing came out, everybody was talking about how much it cost and there's no way it's going to make its money back. And then as soon as, you know, the critics saw it, they had a heyday with it. So I can't uh, say that I was really paying attention to Ishtar. Now, historically it might be the one, you know, the catalyst of film where people were paying attention to it. I don't know that. I have to imagine, especially in the early 80s, maybe even the 70s, people were talking about that in the trades or in the news. Mm-hmm. But this is known for having all of these just crazy stories. And then the other film I can think of is Bonfire of the Vanities, which, I mean, they wrote a whole book on the behind the scenes for that one. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean, this, this I, I would say for me, those are the three films that have this history of the stories behind the scenes um, eclipse any talk of the film. And so you've got Ishtar, Waterworld, and maybe Bonfire of the Vanities. Now the question becomes, and and I think you kind of hinted at this, when you start reevaluating films with a reputation, can you separate yourself from the, re- the reputation and then kind of gauge it on its own? I'm assuming you and I had no problem doing that this time. Oh yeah, I, yeah. Okay. I mean, 1987 was a long time ago, so I, I don't care about the reputation of this film when it came out or since then. Um, doesn't bother me. Like, I'm watching this in my house. It's going to take an hour and 40 minutes. I don't care what the reputation is, really. I just want to see if I want to see if the reputation is deserved. Yeah. But I'm not going to hold that against it. Yeah, I I love I don't know reading about the stuff that went on. Mm-hmm. I, oh yeah, for sure. I, I wish there was like a documentary on this thing in terms of all the stuff that went down. Yeah. 
and everybody would kind of sit down and talk about it and short and sort of uh, share their side of the story in terms of make. But I mean, given the people that had made this thing, there's no way they're going to sit there and talk about any of the mistakes they made. No. Although I would, I would do a documentary just on the camel trainers alone. <laughs> just to I want to hear about that guy who ate that camel. Jeez. Well, just all these stories that they had with all the animal training and stuff like that. But yeah, so that's a, that's a long history of Ishtar and bad movies in general. And this is one of the biggest bad films that I, and bombs that we've talked about. So Brad, this is your pick. I want to start with you and, and get your thoughts on this sucker. So what do you think of Ishtar? Um, before I get started there, I, I want to ask you, do you, does the name Gary Larson mean anything to you? Gary, it sounds awfully familiar. Gary Larson is the guy who created Farside. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this kind of goes into the bad buzz of this film and something that you were talking about with the reputation. He created a comic that is the Hell's Video Store comic. I believe it's a few, it's like four panels maybe. Oh, yeah. Um, it is the uh, video store in, in Hell only has copies of Ishtar. <laughs> and, uh, he, he came out and admitted that he actually had never seen Ishtar when he created that comic and, and, and apologize for that um, after he saw the film because he said that Ishtar was not the worst film he had ever seen. Um, I say Mr. Gary Larson is a liar. Yeah. Uh, I think Ishtar is one of the worst films I've ever seen. But I will tell you this. I actually kind of enjoyed the Rogers and Clark film they had in the first 22 minutes. Um, I will tell you exactly when – I turned on this film. It is 22 minutes and six seconds into the movie when they transition to the desert and that guy finds that box. Everything after that is trash. Um, I, I, I didn't love the first 22 minutes of this film, but I was at least a little bit intrigued um, because I am a sucker for films where it is led by stars. Um, uh -huh. I just watched um, – American Gangster this morning because I was up early and I was like, I haven't seen this in a long time. So I watched it. That is all about uh, Denzel, uh, Idris Elba. Uh, they're, they're just the cast is crazy. Uh, Russell Crowe, all these people just acting the hell out of a movie. It's not a great movie, but I love seeing stars be stars in films. I was expecting to at least see Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty be stars in this movie. They are so wrongfully cast in this movie it is unbelievable you want to tell me that a 1987 warren Beatty has a problem getting women my ass movie my ass like, uh, that is the most unbelievable thing i've ever seen in a film in my entire life well and war Beatty is gonna have a hard time with women well, are he's, you serious he's known i mean during the making of this film he was dating isabel they they were yeah. going out and 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 I guess tensions were uh, pretty high because Isabel didn't get along with the director so yeah yeah I I pretty much sum up my thoughts on this film by one scene there is a scene after sort of a reception early on in the film where uh, Rogers and Clark are are kind of doing their thing where they're they're sort of you know spitballing a song. And the two women, their two girlfriends are watching. And then at some point in time, they just get up and leave because they're super <laughs> bored. And I'm like, man, 
I really wish I could get up and walk away from this movie because I am super bored. Um, the tonal shift in this movie is one of the most catastrophic um, miscalculations I think I've ever seen in a film. I are you mean? Do you mean the tonal shift that happens when they go to Morocco? Or they yes, go to when they go to okay. Morocco and it suddenly becomes like a pseudo political thriller, and I use thriller in quotes because there's nothing really thrilling about it. Um, and then I looked up <laughs> this movie is supposed to be a comedy, which I was like, that's offensive to anything that's ever made anyone <laughs> laugh because this movie is like devoid of any sort of comedy. I. I just think it's weird, Troy. Like when they shifted the desert, I could literally feel, hey, ready for this? My enthusiasm for this film to dry up like a desert because, boy. Oh, that was good. good. That that was good. That was like a dad joke review. Yeah, it was. uh, This film is atrocious. And to think that there's someone says that there's 19 worse films than this one, I say. You are wrong, sir. You are very wrong. Because this, I, I, it was just so boring. And so, uh, everything misfired. Like, I, I, I don't understand the whole CIA thing, the map that really doesn't come into play at all. Like, they use it as a bargaining chip at the very end. But I'm like... This is the whole crux of your movie, and you wait to the last five minutes to show me that it means anything. Um, There's no payoff for the Ishtar thing. Like, do we know what happened? I I just, I don't know, man. It's it's just a very very weird and miscalculated movie. I I can see how people go into this and they're like, "What are we even watching?" I get it. So I I want to make sure I. Because <laughs> I I was being nice to try to say something nice about the first twenty two minutes. It's not great, but at oh, least that, that's a- that's the part that just I'm I'm actually dumbfounded. I'm sitting here going, okay, now per your comments, the first twenty minutes of this film, you were kind of enjoying or found so, interesting, or that would have been the movie I would have rather have seen. I would rather have seen the first Rogers twenty minutes. Clark- yeah, Rogers and Clark dupus their way to become like stage singers or lounge singers or something like that. That's fine. Like, I, I don't think that's a great movie either, but I can at least see the comedy in that. Uh, everything else. I was like, no, it's, it's trash. Oh, wow. Uh, so you and I are going to get to the same decision on this, but we're going to come at it probably from two very different angles. Okay. Okay. So, I've never wanted to turn something off so bad in my life uh, than the first 20 minutes of this film. <laughs> okay. I've just, no, I get, I get it. I get it. I think it's when, when they get to Ishar, when they get out there, I'm like, okay, I'm, I, it, I almost feel like I was at the dentist and whatever they put in your mouth to do the drilling or whatever, it finally set in. The Novocaine or the whatever? The Novocaine, yeah. yeah. But, man, those those first – so the first 15 minutes of this film specifically, because I think that's when I started um, texting you and, and you know, throwing a lot of curse words at you via text. Yeah. Yeah, you did not hide your feelings. I did not. Um, I tried to find every emoji out there to say you're a bad person and send it to you that evening. 
but yeah, the first, the first 15 minutes are probably the worst, uh, 15 minutes in film history. In my opinion, I, I think it's absolutely, uh, pure torture. I mean, watching Hoffman and Beatty trying to come up with song lyrics, it it's terrible. It's, uh, I, I do think Gary Larson's far side comic is accurate. If, if I were to envision hell and I were checking into the video store in hell and they said, well, you have to watch the first 15 minutes of Ishtar. I'd be like, yes, I'm in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like I have a good, um, lawsuit or case. I want to talk to Jose about this against both Beatty and Hoffman for like mental harm or something. I don't know. Uh, because it, it's Ter- so terrible. Terrestre. Yeah. I, and, and you said it, the girlfriends leave the film at the 17 minute mark. And I feel like they are the luckiest people in the world. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so bad. And so once you get past the first 20 minutes of the film, which are intolerable, uh, you then have to sit through a mix of bad jokes and spots of action. And I'm, I'm going to use the term action loosely here. Okay. Uh, also the worst wardrobe, I think in the eighties on Dustin Hoffman, I, I, the I headband? the what the headband, it wasn't just the headband it was the whole outfit. I mean, his headband matched his outfit that he's wearing even in the desert. And I feel like they just went through the eighties, the entire decade and just said every terrible choice of clothing ever created. Let's give that to Dustin Hoffman for this film. And I know it's supposed to be for comedic, uh, effect, but it's, it you was, you were laughing at that. It was an atrocity. Um, <laughs> I feel like, uh, a movie like this rides on the chemistry of its two leads. Like it is not going to be a fun watch unless you enjoy watching those two. So I wanted to ask you about, um, a film that came out a couple of years before in 1985 spies like us. Are you, are you I was just going to mention spies like us. Okay. I was literally, it's in my notes. It's okay. in my notes. God, I love you, Troy. We're so thinking on the same because yes, this film and spies like us, not completely different, right? Uh, yeah. Outside of the singing. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. there's like this weird spy thing or CIA thing. Yes. And, and Chevy, you get, Chase, Chevy Chase is Warren Beatty. And Dan Aykroyd. Is uh, Dustin Hoffman. Yes. Yep. A million times better than this movie. So much funnier. Like iconic scene after iconic, like the doctor scene, all that stuff. Well, Spies and the, Like Us. And the script isn't. Uh, so Spies Like Us is a John Landis film, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, and the yep. script isn't, I would say, all that amazing. But th- I, I think the great thing about Spies Like Us is Aykroyd and Chase take a pretty pedestrian script and, and they're doing the the Hope and Crosby whole road movie thing, right? So it's just uh-huh. another, but man, it's that chemistry, right? It's the chemistry between those two that makes Spies Like Us so enjoyable. I'm so happy you said that. I am so happy you said that. Ah. Yeah, and in, in this one, I mean, there's like zero chemistry between Beatty and Hoffman. I mean, they look bored. They actually look like they're doing a job. Um, this well, I'm sure after doing a scene 50 times, at some point in time, you're like, oh god, this and, is and I feel in too it, much. Yeah, it makes total sense, and I feel like they took the 49th or 50. Yeah, but scene. you can't. Yeah, you can't pick that edit. <laughs> like you can't pick that one. Well, it, but I think they did and they put it in this film. So I, watching this film is like watching two accountants do accounting work. I mean, they have zero comedic Wait, chemistry. Oh, hey, 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 I don't want to see you back work. Off, dude. I don't want to see you work. Right? Okay. I, now what you do in between work, 
is probably funny and charming and say, but I don't want to see you like crunch numbers, right? You don't want to see a bunch of introverts inter figures into an Excel, Excel spreadsheet. Okay, Troy. Yeah. Fine. No, I don't mind doing the work. It would be interesting to, but I don't want to watch somebody do the work. <laughs> um, but it, 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 I mean, it really feels like these are just two guys reading a script and not even trying to act. They're just kind of yelling at each other. Um, and, and to me, that's the worst thing about the film. Forget about the script is boring. But like you said, these two are just terrible together. They're miscast. There's zero chemistry. It could be that maybe on the first take, they were zany and crazy. But by the 49th and 50th take, and that's the one they used for like final edit, they're they're just run down. Uh, and, and I just, I don't believe any of this, especially the first 20 minutes. I think what's so painful about that is when they're trying to come up with songs, they're trying to act like it's improvisational and it doesn't work. Yeah. It it's like improv being read off of a script which is even worse than bad improv. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah, faking improv is is way it's worse. Terrible, man. Um, I I was going to ask you how do you feel about characters in a film who are trying to kind of lie their way through like situations with the person that they're supposed to be like on this road trip with. I find that very odd that here we have two people traveling together in this buddy, you know, world traveling adventure film, but they lie consistently to each other to like, I, I, I still don't know if I understand exactly why they're lying to each other. Um, I don't know. Either. I mean, I, I, I just, I don't know how I'm supposed to, enjoy being with these people when they can't be truthful to the person that they're trying to, to, to travel with. Like, uh, well, they do that in dumb and dumber, don't they? At some point, cause they're kind of going yeah, after the girl, Yeah, but, but there's a girl involved and yeah, there's a girl involved here too, but it's the same um, scenario. I think it comes down to the chemistry. So yeah, yes, yes, exactly. I, one, um, you know, Hoffman's being duped by the CIA and he's on the side of capitalism mm-hmm. and then Beatty's being duped by, you know, a rebel the so communist. he's yeah, on whatever, the side yeah. of communism. So they're lying to each other. So it's supposed to be funny because it's like, Oh, look at, you know, Russian and, the U S going at it, but it's no different because it's over a girl. I mean, they're fighting over a girl, which they do in dumb and dumber. And again, it goes back to that chemistry. So regardless of how stupid and idiotic and, um, I don't know, some, some of the jokes in dumb and dumber are just, you're like, okay, that's potty humor. But the chemistry of those two elevate the potty humor. Whereas these two have a, I guess you would call it like a, I don't know, just less potty humor (laughs) script to it. I mean, it's supposed to be intelligent because it's poking fun at, you know, international relations and spies and stuff like that. But it just, it's the chemistry. The chemistry just kills. It just takes the air out of the room when these two. It's not existent. It's very non-existent. Um, Yeah. (laughs) What'd you think about the, uh, the rate of, boob flash you get in this movie because oh. I, I felt like that was so, one of the most out of place things I've ever seen in a, in a movie in my entire life. I was like, why, why did they do that? Let's talk why, about the why? jokes. Yeah. Let's talk. Okay. Let, okay. So that is a great segue into just jokes. Okay. So it's a comedy. Like you said, let's talk about Can the jokes. Say like quote unquote jokes. Yes. Like, jokes. In, so okay. you, you hit on the first one just to give everybody. And, and so full disclosure, 
this is not one of those films. Like I could see somebody going, oh, you guys talked about solar babies and it sounded so awful and it was fun. It's like, yeah, I could, okay, great. Get your six pack of Yingling or Schlitz or whatever you, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. Paps Blue Ribbon. Go, go watch it. It's fun, right? <laughs> Look, if you haven't seen Ishtar, you're leading a better life in my opinion. We watch it so you don't have to. Exactly. So, because here is an example of the jokes that you're going to get in this film. So, Isabel Ajani as a man. That's the joke, right? Everybody thinks she's a man. And the the two guys can't figure it out, right? However, Literally, she has like one of the most striking faces I've ever seen in my life. I'm oh, like, absolutely. No, that's, a, yeah. that's a woman. Like that is a beautiful woman. So in order for Hoffman to figure it out, uh, she does exactly what you said. She has to flash her breast at Hoffman. And then he's like, oh my God, you're a woman. And then that becomes the big joke, right? Beatty has to feel her boobs for like five minutes. And then he figures it out as they're wrestling on the floor. That's that's the joke of she's a she's a guy or they think she's a guy and they're figuring out that uh, she's not a guy. So there's that joke, right? It's funny. Um, Warren Beatty. I'm slapping my knee over here yeah. so hard. Here's, an, here's another one. Warren Beatty can't say schmuck. He says smuck. And that goes on for... I don't know what oh, felt that's, like that's forever. a running theme throughout because the, he says it at the very end. Yeah, he, it's a running joke. So can't say schmuck, smuck, and then, yeah. hey, say shh, and then <laughs> muck, and then put, yeah, there you go. That's say a fast. joke. Yep. 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 Uh, Dustin Hoffman keeps calling himself Hawk because of some gang history or something. So he's, in, he's trying to impress all the girls and uh, says his nickname is Hawk, and he goes into this story and about. Mm-hmm. Breaking up game yeah. fights or something. Yep. That's Little a joke. old Dustin Hoffman, you know. Yeah. The Hawk. Um, it gets really funny towards the end when um, Hoffman has to sell guns to the locals. So he acts like he can speak Arabic and just shouts nonsense. I was even offended by that. Yeah. I'm not Arabic and nope. I'm going to, I feel like I should write a strongly worded email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other part of that is, um, what is it? Beatty's in, in the crowd acting like he understands it to get everybody else to go look at the camels that were stolen or something. And there's a blind camel. Oh, wait, wait. Before that, because um, there's more of them trying to sing in the cant and especially how this film ends. I mean, if you, if you think the first 20 minutes are atrocious, then they do a whole musical of their escapades in front of the military for like 15 I thought the movie was over as soon as they fought off the helicopters but no we got to listen to them sing and dance for another 15 minutes yeah it's uh not great those are the jokes not great um you yeah so when it's listed as a comedy I'm like who says who says this is a comedy because I want to know who they are because I need to talk to them well it's an action comedy Brad there's some, some action in it mm. yeah you get old man uh, parkour on the rooftops as they're trying to escape all the spies, right? The slowest parkour you will ever see in your entire life. Yep. Uh, and then you get this big finale with them shooting at uh, two helicopters with like machine guns and missiles to, to save themselves. Mm-hmm. So there's the action. I think part there's a RPG or something like that too. Yep. Now you, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be honest. I did laugh at one point and you've already mentioned it. Um, the best thing in this film is the blind camel. Absolutely. Uh, that joke when they're kind of walking through the market and the camel is just <laughs> knocking everything over. Um, and 
they keep saying, well, don't, don't pull it too. He's got a toothache, but this, this camel literally looks like it is blind and it's just knocking into everything, everybody into the market. And they're trying to lead it as they're arguing. Um, that's the camel why it gives the best performance in this film. It hands is down. the camel and, um, the camel trainers, Buford Randall and Paul Reynolds are the stars of Ishtar because that one sequence. Now it's not so funny that you need to run out and subject yourself to the total runtime of this film. But as you were trying to say something positive, the old, so there's two things I'll say positive about this. The camel made me laugh pretty hard. Um, I'm, I'm a sucker for animal jokes too. I actually thought Charles Grodin was kind of amusing in it. I think he's wasted. He's never out loud funny, but it's almost like you're, you're, I don't know. Somebody's like trying to poke you in the eye you know, for, I don't know, an hour and a half. And then somebody comes on for a few minutes and says, well, don't poke Troy in the eye for about five minutes. And you go, Oh, well, thank you. And then as soon as he leaves, then they start poking you in the eye again. That's how I felt with Charles Grodin. Like yeah. when he's it's on screen, nice it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm not getting poked in the eye anymore. But then as soon as he leaves, then Hoffman and, and Beatty are poking me in the eye. But those no, are I the get, only yeah. two things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think Charles Grodin is okay. Yeah. That's I, the best. I mean, he's he, the camel is way better than Charles Grodin in here. Awesome. Yes. The, the, the camel gets a gold star. Charles Grodin gets like a C plus maybe, uh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, this movie's not very good. Um, I watching it last night. I knew I was in trouble. As soon as that guy gets that box out of whatever hole he gets it in, and I'm like, "Oh, how 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 uh, how much longer do I got? Oh, I've got an hour and twenty minutes. <laughs> oh boy, this yeah. is this is gonna be long." Um, man, I, I hate to dump on a movie <laughs> because you know people. Oh no, please do. Pod- people listen to the podcast, and you know you, you're you just you don't want to just say, "Oh, this movie's bad," but it is a. I don't want to say a special kind of bad, but it is just a weird look out of the film and you like everything about it. You're like, why did they like, why did they go down that path? I didn't even go down that path. I know why they, they went down, they went down every path because it, you expect them to go down every path. Like I, I saw spies like us many, many times. So everything that they do in this film, I expected them to do it makes total sense. I mean, it's an extremely predictable film outside of the blind camel. I didn't see the blind camel coming, but everything in the movie, the plot points, the uh, characters, who they were, who they represent, etc. If you've seen spies like us, if you, if you've seen any, you know, buddy road film, you've seen this film. It's just is, it, it, I don't know. It's not even, it's not even that, you know, those two lack chemistry and they're not funny. I've never seen two people on screen that when they show up in the same scene, they just make you angry. Like it's it's not like you're bored. You're just like, please shut up. Stop yeah, talking. I, I, <laughs> I did want them to stop talking a lot, which is not what you want in your movie. Because you're like, I don't want to hang out with these people. No, I don't. I don't want to hang out with these people. So why do I want to go on a, a road trip movie with them? I, I hate both of them. They're not good people. Um, and th- I, yeah, yeah. The the two smartest characters of this movie are their girlfriends and they're out at minute 17. So I should. Well, the three, the camel is yeah, smart. Well, yeah. yeah. Then yeah. the girlfriends. But yeah, I mean, 
I, I just, I, out of the 75 films now we've talked about, or this 76, is 70, yeah, 76, if you want to count some of the, well, we probably talked about more. I don't know. This, this is for me, the worst film we've ever talked. I, I would watch Mortal Kombat Annihilation over this. That's a, it's at least got some fun parts in it yeah. and it's ridiculous. I was thinking about Supernova today, which I would please. watch Supernova over this one. I'd watch Solar Babies over this one. Oh, absolutely. I don't know. Supernova, I don't I don't know. I maybe uh, I hands would. down. Maybe I hands would. down. There's at least something like nobody in Supernova. Yeah, I can look at Supernova and go, okay, that's dumb. And uh it's another kind of hot mess that's occurring on screen. But mm-hmm. just Hoffman and Beatty together on screen is terrible. Like I worry about the next time I'm going to see Dick Tracy because they're in that together and they have those shorts, you know, scenes where he's mumbles and Beatty's Dick Tracy. I'm, I'm why, wondering why, why don't we slow down just a little bit. Let's not. Well, no, no, no. Hold on. I, what I'm saying is, am I going to have an Ishtar flashback when I see them on screen together and have that knee jerk reaction? My body's going to kind of go, Ooh, I remember Ishtar and it's going to take me out of Dick Tracy the next time I watch it. That's how bad yeah. this film is. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's bad. I I looked at 37% on Rotten Tomatoes. I was like, how is it that hard? And then I made the mistake today of just like going out. There, and then like people are are kind of coming back around. I've seen this like, Why? oh, you know, now that this, well, now this on Blu-ray, people are coming around and they're like, oh, it's actually not that bad. It's actually a, a great movie. I'm like, this is... So far from great, it can't even see great. Like it is the inverse of great. And I, I don't understand why people would want to die on this hill of Ishtar is a great movie. No. And and when I found out like Edgar Wright, Tarantino, Martin Scorsese all enjoy this film, I'm like, okay, now you're you're just saying stupid shit so people pay attention to you. Ishtar Maybe, is not yeah. a good film. No, th- this is one of those like, hey guys, look how cool and hip I am. I like I've actually one of, seen Ishtar. I've seen Ishtar and I think it's one of the better, like some of the films that Tarantino or any of them pick and I go, okay, I don't necessarily like, like that film, but I understand why it's important or what part of it maybe influenced you as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. You can't watch, you, you just can't watch Ishtar and say, oh my gosh, that's such a, that, that is just being contrarian in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I agree with that. That is a hundred percent a contrarian. Like, hey, I like Ishtar, and when you go, well, why? Whatever comes out of your mouth, it can't be quantitative, and it's stupid. So, wow. okay. I, yeah, I, I mean, I would choose living under communism than have to watch this thing again. It's terrible, terrible. Yeah, it's 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 not a great movie. I, I think it's it's either one or two of the worst that we've done. Well, sure. yeah, I I'll say the first fifteen minutes of this film are the worst fifteen minutes I've ever watched, and and I'm thinking about another film. So the 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 other film that came to mind, so Spies Like Us, immediately is what I started thinking about, and like, oh my god, why am I not watching that one? Yeah, but the other thing is when you have famous people who you don't expect to sing, and you put them in front of camera, and you go, oh, it's gonna be funny to try and watch them sing. The other film that came to mind, and it's another 80s film, and we've reviewed it like years ago, was Rhinestone with Sylvester Stallone and Dolly Parton. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. And again, it's a terrible film, 
But to me, it's a lot of fun to watch. And I think why it's fun to watch is there's actually really good chemistry between Sylvester Stallone and Dolly Parton. And again, it's another road film. They go back to Tennessee and she's trying to teach him, you know, how to, how to be a country and Western singer. And he runs into Tim Thomas and it, and the situations are, are, I mean, rhinestone is like one big dad joke. Um, <laughs> but when he wears that outfit and is singing Drinkenstein, you're like, okay, that's the level of humor you're getting. Uh, but the chemistry in that elevate it to a point where you go, it's so bad. I can have fun with it. Mm-hmm. This is the, this is like taking the worst things in the universe and putting it together and then seeing what happens on screen. And when they open their mouths and try to sing, it's, um, yeah, it's like cats mating, man. It's terrible. Yeah. You, you do bring up a good point. I, I think the chemistry of your two lead characters is so important in these films that if you get that wrong, you're, you're playing behind the eight ball the whole entire time. Cause you're, you're just, you're, it's just a wall that's going to be hard to get over because it, it, those are the people you're with. And if, if they don't seem like they get along, then the whole film suffers from it. Um, yeah. Like you said, dumb and dumber spies like us, uh, you know, there's a million, uh, you know, buddy cop or road trip films and it all hinges on whether or not the leads have, uh, chemistry, uh, the heat. That's one where, you know, Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock. It's actually a really good movie because the they have chemistry together. Um, Planes, trains, and automobiles is another yeah, exactly. example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not a great movie, but at least there's chemistry yeah. between. Um, yeah, that's. I I, I think <laughs> I think that's probably the thing you have to get the most with these films is not the script and not the premise or anything like that. It's whether or not your two leads seem like they can get along with each other. Um, yeah, I have no doubt they, I have no doubt these two get along fine. Cause obviously they, they continue to work together like on Dick mm-hmm. Tracy, but those two, you do not, uh, it's oil and water. In my opinion, you, this is not a peanut butter and jelly scenario, right? This is like putting peanut butter with, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's raw uncooked salmon, I, whatever it is. It, it just, it doesn't make sense. So yeah. I, I have no clue when they were shooting this thing or putting it together that you put those two in the room trying to improvise songs or read a script like that they're improvising. Anybody looked at this and said, oh, my gosh, that works really well together. Yeah. But I mean, I guess at that point in time, you've already got them signed on and they're big names. Uh, I think if Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are in, in this movie, it, it does even worse. So. It's, it's one of those things where it's probably a smart idea that they were in it, but also a bad idea because it just doesn't work. It's a catch-22 in that sort of sense. Right? I mean, because I, I agree who, with you. I mean, to see this if it's random guy one and random guy two? And it's – I'm sorry, Elaine May, like, did some good stuff. But, I mean, I think Heartbreak Kid is good. But I don't know, man. I don't think that she's a pull, so – you have to have some names. No, I agree with you. I mean, the the number one sin of this film is the casting. I mean, that's probably why casting director. So uh, we just watched recently, and I know it's been out for a couple of um, years, is the Never Surrender, the Galaxy Quest documentary. It's on Amazon Prime. Uh-huh. And everybody talks about putting that cast together 
with Tim Allen and Alan Rickman. I mean, everybody that's in Sigourney Weaver, right? Mm-hmm. That cast, I can't imagine anybody else in, in Galaxy Quest. And I think David Mamet like calls it one of his top six perfect films. So as as funny as the script is for Galaxy Quest, the chemistry of that cast and, and how the, they bring out those characters and play off of each other is really what makes Galaxy Quest so good as an ensemble piece. And it shows the importance of a casting director. So to me, Galaxy Quest is a great example. If you have a fantastic script with a great cast, you get what might be considered a near perfect film like uh-huh. Galaxy Quest. Um, <laughs> Spies Like Us, just it's I mean, it has a pretty good director. I like Landis. I don't think the script is all that inventive, but it has two comedic actors that play so well off of each other that it elevates everything. And it shows the importance of that uh, relationship in that comedic chemistry. So uh, to me, the biggest sin that this, this movie makes is putting Beatty and Hoffman together singing and expecting comedy out, out of that scenario. Yeah. And then throwing them in the desert. Well, yeah. I mean, I would follow the blind camel around for maybe 90 minutes, uh, but not those two, not at all. I don't know. What, not I, good, Troy. Not a good movie. It's not. It, it's quite terrible. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know if it's the worst movie I've ever seen. I'd have to really kind of go back and think about that. But I can confidently say the first fifteen minutes of this film is probably the worst fifteen minutes of film I've ever seen. Yeah, it, it goes in that pile of film I will never watch again. Oh, like absolutely. I've seen not. it once. Yeah. I don't ever need to see this again. Like I'm going to put and a that, label on my Blu-ray in the light and just tell my kids like don't touch, which I probably shouldn't do that. Cause that would probably make them want yeah. to watch it. Right. What are the, the conjuring films, the Warrens, they have that glass case where they keep all the, Oh, like Annabelle and stuff. Yeah. Annabelle. Yeah. I'd put that. this in a glass case Lock and say, and key. don't yeah. ever open. I wish this movie was buried with all those copies of ET, of ET? the Atari 2600 yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. Well, um, you got anything else on this thing? Don't see this movie. Oh, yeah. I do have one question. I joked last week about, hey, would uh, would watching this film feel longer than watching The Postman? What I mean, that was a that was a pretty long film. Did did you it. did you feel like this felt longer than watching Kevin Costner no, around in the wasteland? No, I I, I don't think this no because there was some parts in the watch the postman where i was like oh my gosh this is crawling uh there are some slow parts in this movie but like i said i kind of somewhat enjoyed that first 20 minutes i know you hated it which i think is funny that you and i are oh yeah both hate this movie but you hated it for a different reason than me uh but i no dude i i I really hated the postman too so we are we are doing a bad job this month. <laughs> I didn't, I like, I, I had a marginal thumbs down on the postman, but I didn't feel like this movie felt long. This movie felt longer than the postman. Um, because I was, I was getting more out of the postman than I would ever get out of this thing. Yeah. Well, the best thing about the postman was like how poignant it has become. Yeah. And so I started thinking about that. So I, I started thinking about stuff, outside of the postman that it related to and, and not actually the postman itself. So that might not be a hundred percent fair. This one doesn't age very well. No, you know, 
making fun of the way Middle Easterns talk and all that stuff. It just really doesn't age well. Yeah, I just, I, I mean, <laughs> just that whole uh, Isabella Johnny is as a guy joke that, I mean, the way they do, I, I was literally like, whoa, wow. that. But to be fair, there is a part where Dustin Hoffman, like, you know, says he's straight, but, you know, he doesn't judge and that's totally fine. You know, do what you want to do, make whatever makes you feel happy. But then they kind of step all over that. They're just like, but you look like a, uh, yeah, 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 I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, it's the 80s. It's, yeah. It's hard oh, to go back yeah. and watch the like, 80s. I'm not, and- I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like judge it in 2020 vision as a bad movie. Like, it's bad because of more reasons oh, than yeah, just that. It's, it's so bad it doesn't because really because of the two leads. Yeah. Jeez. All right. Well, um, hey, uh, since we always do this shtick where it's, you know, is 1987's Ishtar a bomb, Brad? What do you think? It's an absolute bomb. Yeah, yeah it's it's please. a fucking bomb. <laughs> there yes. you go. You can put the not suitable for movie. work. Yeah. Um, we uh, we watched this movie so you don't have to. Oh, my God. Terrible. I own this movie now, Troy. I do, too. I've I've owned it for a while. I have a lot a of while. boxes. that I've been getting a lot of deliveries for Christmas, and I have a lot of boxes. I'm like, maybe I should burn this with all those boxes. Like, <laughs> I don't. No one knows I have it. Uh, boy, it's it's a crime against humanity. It really is. Well, listen, we're, um, I don't know, 0 for 2 so far this month on first-time watches of bombs. Yep. We're yep. going into another notorious bomb, like notorious bomb. A four-hour Western, Troy. We're going to a four-hour Western. We're sticking to the 80s. So one of the films that uh, I picked was 1980s Heaven's Gate, starring Chris Christopherson and Christopher Walken and directed by Michael Cimino. This will this will be fun. Notorious asshole Michael Cimino. Yeah, so speaking of another, asshole directors. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I, this is going to be interesting. So it's been out there for a little while. Uh, Criterion put this big mm-hmm. epic set out. And yep. I think you can get the theatrical cut as well as the big four-hour like director's cut. So this is another movie that has a lot of troubled history leading up to it. Um, it did get uh, some Oscar nominations at the time, which we'll talk about that. But this is one that, I don't know about you, it had a bit of a reputation among um, just you know film groups that I, I follow, et cetera. And when this thing hit Criterion on Blu-ray, everybody bought it and everybody started talking about how gorgeous it was. And uh, so I bought it, but I've never sat down to watch it because it is one of those films that when you look at the time and the runtime, and um, I know we talked about this earlier. If, it, if it's first time watch, I don't want to piece it out. Like I want to, I want to watch it all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it's tough to find four hours to to sit down and watch this. Yeah, that is true. Um, you know, I've 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 watched uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a few times, um, all the way through. Yeah. So you, you kind of do it if you really want to. I just have always kind of used it as an excuse to not watch this movie because there, I mean, the reputation is there. Um, so I'm like, I don't want to waste four hours. I know I like this movie, so I'll watch <laughs> that instead of watching this movie. But now I can no longer do that. Um, so I'm curious to see it. I know that criterion is supposed to look gorgeous. So at least there's that. Um, so I, I'm just, I'm really sort of curious. Cause I, I, I like Westerns. Um, I'm more of a, a samurai film 
person as opposed to the Western, but they're literally almost the same exact genre. Uh, Guns for swords is basically about the same thing. Um, So I'm curious, you know, because Kurosawa films typically run four hours too. So, you know, the the runtime can be a a blessing if you, if you enjoy it. Uh, If you don't be a real, real tough one. So we will see how, how it works out, but I'm curious. I'm real curious though. This has been the one since we've talked about doing this that I've wanted to see the most. Me too. Out of all the ones that we have picked, this is the one that I've been kind of excited for only because everybody that I, I respect has really hyped this out. And in terms of Westerns, it's one, cause I've, I've watched a lot of the, if not all of the classics, I just haven't ever sat down to watch this one. So I feel like it's, it's been on my bucket list for a while and I'm, I'm kind of excited to uh, take that one off. I don't, yeah. I don't know if, uh, if classic goes with this, but you know, sure. Why not? Yeah. Notorious. Not? Which, and what are we doing after that? Just so people are playing along if they want to uh, get prepared. Yeah. We're doing Michael Mann's black hat after yes. that. A little bit I more believe, of a recent one. Yeah. I believe we're going to try to do the director's cut on that. We but, picked a lot of like long films this month. Yes. This is the shortest. Yeah. Ishtar was the shortest film that we picked for this month. And it was like 104 minutes. Yeah. And then everything else was like three or four hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Brad, if anybody wants to send us some suggestions, we're starting to put schedules together for the first part of 2022. Um, we've already got uh, December kind of pegged. But, um, hey, if you, if you want to talk about your favorite movie bomb, or give us feedback about Ishtar 1987. Uh, I I would really love anybody to write in to defend this thing and and tell us why we're wrong. Um, we, There'll be crickets in our inbox on that. We promise <laughs> we we won't say bad things or we'll or, keep you anonymous too. If you want to be anonymous and just say, "Hey, I think this is a good movie," we'll keep you anonymous. Yeah, uh, but that is not a bomb pod at gmail.com. You can also get on. Uh, get at us at on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and there's kind of yeah. a there's kind of a bonus episode of us out there too, right? Oh yeah the uh, the Iron Sequel. We were on uh, the Iron Sequel with James um, a few almost like a month ago now, um, but he bumped us for a Halloween episode, which I totally get because yep. he yeah do that. Do that for sure. Uh, but go out, listen to the iron sequel. You can listen to Troy and I talk about, uh, another bomb, uh, the Chronicles of Riddick, which, um, we both play our parts, which I like, uh, (laughs) I won't spoil it, but you know, you play the Troy part and I play the Brad part. And if you've listened to the show before, you will know what that means. So, uh, yeah, it was so much uh, fun. We're going to get James on. I mean, he, I don't know. He, he gelled with us perfectly. I had such a blast talking that movie Absolutely. with him and um he gave us a few picks and there there's some doozies we definitely got some good recommendations from him yeah i was surprised because that was the first time i had talked to james ever and you know usually you kind of have some correspondence with someone back and forth before you literally talk to them for the first time but you handled the all that and uh so i got on the mic and we all did like it was like we had known each other for a long time. So it was uh, all natural and really fun. And uh, James is a good dude. And his yeah, podcast listened. go. I mean, his whole podcast is he just concentrates on sequels. 
Yeah. Um, and the sequels Which that they kind of goes part part with ours a little bit because yeah. a lot of those, you know, their the sequels have been notorious for not being as good as the originals and blah blah blah. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a fun podcast. So go check out the Iron sequel. Yep. Also check out the VHS Files podcast. Check out Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Um, Sammy is going to be back on for another discussion of Cowboy Bebop when we do Not a Bomb Watches. We're getting close. We got what six episodes left of the six anime. Six episodes left. Yep. yep and then yep. I think Sammy's joining us for Heaven's Gate. That's the plan. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah the guy who's on hiatus uh, just can't can't stop stay away from the microphone. Um, in the back, look cinema. It's another one. Um, Zach and Zoe, uh, go check them out. What's it say about Ishtar that Sammy would rather come on a four-hour Western than to sit through Ishtar? Well, he warned us. He'd already seen Ishtar. Yeah. And he stayed away big time. All of our friends stayed away. Nobody took a bullet for Ishtar. It was just us, man. Yeah. So we finally did it. We did We did Ishtar. Yeah. And, and I'm, can, I'm, I'm glad it was just you and I. Tonight. I mean, we, it's been yeah. a while since you and I have just, just been us. Not that we don't like everybody. But uh, no, I, mean, I know I'm I glad know. we got to I, sound like two old men talking about how bad this movie was. <laughs> and, and I'm glad we didn't subject someone else to watching this movie. So, yeah, they would have stopped talking to us altogether. I think Yeah, I want to keep people as our friends. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And, and we love you listeners. So please stay far away from Ishtar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I usually don't talk about reviews and things like that, but we have a hundred and sixty nine five star reviews on iTunes. I know. Right. 169. Uh, if you would like to leave us a review, that would be awesome. Um, if you haven't already, leave us a five star or whatever we think that we deserve, you know, whatever. Um, go there, leave us a review. That'd be awesome. Um, We've been kind what? of, I don't know, light on social media, but our schedules have been nuts so far. Yeah. I promise yeah, to pick that up. I know, but the social media stuff is like, it's uh, hard. I know exactly. It's we're old. We're old we're and old. it's hard. I don't like to do social media in real life. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's all right. Joy. I forgive you. That's okay. <laughs> it, it is nice to see folks like V and stuff like that still listening and on the Twitter yeah. account, giving a review. So, uh, love it. Love all your recommendations. Go, I go back every once in a while. She'll bring something up. I'm like, what did I say? And then she'll, I'll have to go back and listen. I'm like, Oh God, what a moron. Yeah. Well, I don't think we'll be saying that when we listen to this episode. We're going to be like, man, we were so right. That movie was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Stop defending Ishtar. Internet, stop it. Yeah, Scorsese and Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino. You make good movies, but the movies that you watch that you decide to say are awesome, no bueno. No bueno. No bueno. Well, listen, folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. We are just super thankful you sat around to listen to us complain about having to watch uh, Ishtar. And, um, hey, join us More next like Shittar, right, Troy? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where that was coming. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, join us next week when we talk about a big, epic Western 1980s Heaven's Gate. And hopefully Sammy can uh, jump on and share his thoughts, too as we continue this little trip on first time watches that were bombs. We'll catch you next week. Don't lose your head.